This is the Erasing Shame Podcast, Season 3. Honest talk for healthy living, growing, and thriving. Welcome everyone to Season 3 of Erasing Shame. This is your co-host, Nancy Lee. And today I'm joined by two of my friends. This is Bill Lee and Cynthia Kambun Hyung. I hope I got that right, Cynthia. <laughs> um, these are two of my friends here from San Diego, and they do represent uh, the Laotian community here in San Diego. And I'd like to continue this episode in really highlighting more of the voices of Southeast Asian experiences around shame and community, and be able to really explore more of the invisible voices of what it's like to be an Asian, more or less a minority community group here in uh, the U.S. So. First of all, let me have Bill uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Um, feel free to share a little bit about the work that you're involved in, Bill, and um, you know your interest in sharing about um, your experiences with shame. Hi, everyone. My name is Bill, and my last name is Lee. And you can call me Billy. I identify with both identities. Um, with the Lao community and my Lao identity, I represent... Um, just the first generation experience in addition to my mom being first generation here in the United States. And my passion really relies in working with low income populations, first generation refugee populations, and also LGBTQIA populations. And that's me. Thanks, Bill. And then Cynthia, we went to high school together. So I'm so grateful to still have you in our in my life. And we get to continue to connect over a lot of um, the work that we get to do in the nonprofit space and being in HR because uh, she's also in HR. But Cynthia, do you want to introduce yourself real quick to our audience? Yeah, sure. I'm Cynthia Kambun-Huang. And I am the second generation um, Laotian American and first generation American born. And um, I have a background in human resources, been in human resources for about 13 years. And um, I've been experiencing nonprofits as well and absolutely enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those things where we all can connect the three of us by the passions and the work and all that um, stuff that we get to really help represent and press into the community. So I was hoping that we can really talk and be centered around the topic of the importance of community and especially coming from the Southeast Asian culture where communities are very tight knit and very, um, very important into our daily life. I wanted to be able to have you guys highlight um, the importance of community and what community really looks like to you versus you know, the, um, the American experience of community, um, maybe highlighting the differences of um, maybe the nuances of what that represents. Do you want to start us off with us uh, with that first, Bill? Sure. So my idea of community, especially with the Lao community specifically, I believe um, about 60, 70% of the Lao community is a Buddhist representative for religion. So a lot of the community spaces that have developed are in temples or, but in addition to that, um, I also worked with the San Diego Asian Youth Organization, which worked under the San Diego Police Department. And that also works within the Southeast Asian community as well. So there's two parts um, to each side. Yeah, and what about growing up with um, the Laotian community for you, Bill? Were you feeling very connected to it? Was it really uh, something that you you kind of felt separate from or how how involved were you because I do know that you were Mr. Laotian Mr. Lao in 2016. 
my involvement um, really started in high school with the San Diego Asian Youth Organization. In addition to being in high school, I had two Asian clubs that I attended. So that for me was community. So having a space where other first generation students um, can connect together and understand the Asian diaspora and assimilating to Western cultures in addition to navigating the school system. So that's how I kind of found community. And also aside from now for the community, there's like Lao boat races, there's um, New, um, New Year's parade and New Year's um, celebrations to be planned for. So there's spaces within communities that is always planning for new things to be growing in the community. Yeah, that's where I stand at the moment. Awesome. And Cynthia, do you want to share about your experience with that and um, the importance of having community in your life, especially coming from the Laotian community? Yeah, of course. Um, so when I was growing up, um, the, the you know, community aspect of, you know, being Lao was a little bit um, challenging for me because I have a pretty unique experience, I would say. Um, like, you know, Billy had, Bill had mentioned, um, most Lao people are, you know, Buddhist, and I grew up a Catholic, and um, my parents, you know, they were converted, um, great aunt were com converted back in the homeland, and so, you know, um, you know, growing up, it was just, you know, masses and all of that, and I really couldn't connect to my culture um, much, you know, and, and the connection to my culture was really through just food and language, and so it was later on in life that I was able to truly connect to my roots. Um, but that's it's a, it's a long story. But for me, it was um, definitely a, a, a unique experience. Um, I, I did feel that, you know, um, I was lacking in the support from my community because of the fact that, what, that I was Catholic. Um, and there were, you know, I had experiences where, you know, I was told that I wasn't real Lao, like I wasn't a real Lao person because, you know, I wasn't Buddhist. So, um, you know, there's definitely, um, you know, um, some challenges there. Yeah. And I think that just goes to show like the experience of us being Southeast Asians and being the first American born generation um, because all of us are just trying to find our identity here and our uniqueness and anything that kind of deviates from the group norm it really feels like we're on it on this journey on our own like you said like not sticking to and conforming to um the the cultural roots of religion in this example really felt um isolating for you and for myself you know for me diving down the path of entrepreneurship and even as a christian and a lot of other things as well um i think there's a lot to be said about the importance of having community but the way that our parents learned it it worked for them, but here for us being first generation American born, it doesn't always work for us the same way. Um, can you guys actually share a little bit about the history of Laotians coming to America? Because I don't know the whole story of assimilation and what that journey was. I do know that a lot of the stories of the Southeast Asians coming to the US were all kind of tied together from the Vietnam War, uh, the Khmer Rouge and the genocide, even over in Burma and Myanmar now, there's still mass killings and genocide. But, you know, there's there's this history that I feel like most people are not really aware of when they think about the Southeast Asian stories of um, the Laotian community. So I don't know if you guys feel, you know, qualified or equipped, but feel free to share what you do know, because um, anything would be great right now. I have no idea how that whole assimilation process happened. 
Do you want to start first, Cynthia? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'll share what I do know. Um, you know, it was definitely a painful experience for our elders. Um, and I know, you know, a lot of, you know, elders don't want to, you know, talk about it. So it's, you know, me gathering information as I've grown and just hearing stories, um, you know, that, that, you know, people are willing to share. But um, from, from what I'm aware of, it was, there were two sides. One, one side was, um, you know, for westernizing. And then there was another side that was against it and wanted to stay true to the roots. And also, you know, they were in favor of communist, um, you know, ways. And so, you know, the two sides battled. Um, my, I actually lost my uh, grandfather um, to the war. He was actually a soldier within the Royal Lao Army. And, you know, and then my you know, parents fled from Laos um, and, you know, ended up um, in a small town in Texas. And um, from what I know, you know, the American government was very uh, strategic in where they placed uh, families. And usually they would place them in, um, you know, areas that they felt the, you know, families would be able to, you know, contribute to society. So for my family, we ended up in a small town in Texas and it was around um, a factory, a beef processing plant. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of, you know, Lao families ended up there. A lot of Vietnamese families ended up there. And that was their only way of like uh, a means of living was working in these, you know, factories. Um, so yeah, that's pretty much, you know, about what I know. Yeah. Uh, Bill, do you want to add anything further to that? Yeah. Um, your, Cynthia, your uh, story about factory and line work by your parents. So my parents met in a, an electric assemblage line work. So they were developing parts and basically factory line work. And that's the only mm -hmm. way to support. And it's, it's um, interesting because I learned that they they supported them in areas where they would be of need of of uh, of cheap low wage labor, and so factory work was their only means of financial growth. Um, but going back to the history of what I've known is um, the United States um, has targeted Laos as like the number one bombed country in the world in the world um it's known as a secret war during the vietnam war the u.s um, was also bombing laos um, for nine years and uh, so the u.s air force targeted communist forces tying back to cynthia's um, story uh, not sorry but true life um in neighboring laos which holds ho chi minh's quarters for supplies and so the the intersection between my identity of vietnamese and also laotian kind of between land and um, so for nine years, two million tons of bombs were dropped, and they are still um, trying to detonate, or I don't know the term, but put down the bombs and um, still try to find them. And Laos is a very mountainous area, and therefore it's very hard to um, find the bombs or identify them. People are still getting hurt to this day, and so going back to the uh, assimilating going back to um, going into the United States and fleeing from Laos to the United States. So it looks like we lost Bill on the audio on the video but I am able to get him on the audio so we'll be able to do it this way. Um, 
bear with us. Uh, hopefully you guys can hear him okay, but we do have, have him on speaker. So Bill, can you share about the history of what you know about the assimilation process and the history of the Laotian um, experience coming to America? Um, the history that I know so far is about the secret war that happened during the Vietnam War. The U.S. was also bombing Laos. Um, so for nine years, the U.S. Air Force targeted communist forces in neighboring Laos, which holds Ho Chi Minh's corridors for supplies. And for nine years, two million tons of bombs were dropped in Laos every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. And so the idea of memory was a part of my mom's history and not being able to remember her birth date and relating uh, to Western culture and trying to figure out um, how to live her life. And so she came down during high school and um, she met um, my dad also in a factory line work assemblage for electronics. And so connecting with Cynthia's um, story about factory line work as a means of financial gain in in uh, climbing up the social capital of, of wealth in the United States. Okay, so it sounds like there was a lot of factory work. Was that the thing you could share in San Diego and Texas and all the other cities? Today? I would agree, yes. Yeah, Cynthia? Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree. Um, you know, there was a, a process in place. Um, I wish there was another process after that. Um, what I found in my community is that a lot of, you know, communities get lost in that cycle where they're, they're put into this place and they can't get out of it. You know, it's like, okay, give us a means to, you know, make a living, but then how do we get out of here? How do we, you know, move forward? How do we climb up? Um, and that's what a lot of families struggled with um, in the small town in Texas that I grew up in. And there's still people working in, you know, those factories who are going through health conditions and getting like, what do you call it? Arthritis from holding the knives every day. And, and, not, to and, and not to mention like the, the psychological trauma that they have to go through with having to, you know, do the work that they do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about, Bill, um, what you've seen uh, in terms of impacts with the community, um, with the career options that they were given the opportunities for or their assimilation process here in the U.S.? Um, so my mom's experience um, as a Laotian woman coming in as a high schooler, around high school age, she also took upon factory line work as a means of financial support for the family. And it's interesting because my dad did that as well. And that's how my parents met. And both being first um, refugees coming into the United States, how else are, is one supposed to get means of financial without even knowing the language? So I believe um, the industries have developed these factory line work in order for to support low-wage labor and getting it from transnational labor. Yeah, anything else to add, Cynthia? Yeah, and, and we've seen, you know, the same thing in, you know, um, the Asian communities before us, you know, in the Chinese communities and the Filipino communities, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's, we, we do serve a purpose and, you know, there is a strategy behind, you know, um, our 
I guess you can say our ticket into America. Yeah. And it sounds like from what I hear, Cambodian history, Laotian history, and I don't know too much about the Hmong history, but very similar to the Vietnam War and the Vietnam experience, like it was a story of coming here as refugees because we we're escaping war and genocide and communism. Um, I don't know too much about Thai Thai history. I don't think that that's necessarily the same case, but um, I think that's one thing that's important to know about a lot of the Southeast Asian experience is that, you know, there was a lot of shame in the aspect of like, we grew up as an impoverished um, community. And so sometimes when it gets blended in with the rest of the Asian model minority and they're being compared to, you know, Asians from China that have been here, you know, five generations um, past, it, the stories are very different. And so I did want to highlight the differences there. And also the importance of being able to really have that communal aspect, because I do sense that in the Laotian community, especially very similar to the Cambodian community, that um, everything was very tight knit. Um, and then there was a deep sense of belonging to one another through the tragedy, through the pain, and through being able to survive and help each other grow. Um, yeah, and it sounds like you guys had your parents meet and stuff like that. So that's that's kind of cute. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and so for you guys growing up, I mean, when we talk about shame and the experience of shame, I know a lot of times we didn't experience or we didn't understand how to talk about that when we were younger. Um, at what point did you guys start feeling and identifying with this need to really branch out and start finding who you were and really start being able to, um, I guess you say be different than, than where you were what you were being raised in terms of the Laotian community and values. Uh, Bill, do you want to start with that? I'll pass it on to Cynthia. Okay, Cynthia, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, you know, I really started to branch out of my, you know, way of thinking. Um, well, you know, it's, I've been through a lot in my life and it's really hard to pinpoint exactly when, but I can tell you one thing. I, I, can identify with shame early on when I was, you know, younger. And, um, you know, in addition to being um, a Catholic Laotian, um, I also had, you know, um, a father who um, was a, a drug abuser. And so I, I experienced a lot of like abuse within the household, a lot of poverty. Um, and, you know, that also, um, caused me to be like, you know, very different than like most of my Laotian friends. Um, so not only was it, you know, me being Catholic and not fitting into like the model of what Laotian is, but also, you know, being poor and having a father who, you know, was struggling through trauma. Um, so, you know, there was, there was a lot of shame around that. And, you know, I didn't know that until I was a lot older. Um, so fast forward to like, you know, five years, um, you know, with the past five years, you know, I went, I had to go through a divorce. Um, I lost, um, a brother to, um, to, uh, street violence and, you know, that, that really shook me, you know, um, you know, after my brother was murdered about, you know, four years ago, it really caused me to reevaluate my beliefs and, um, you know, it's like 
you know, everything that I, I thought I believed in was like shattered into like a tiny little pieces. And, and then I really had to, you know, rebuild, you know, I had to figure out exactly, you know, what I identified with, who am I, you know, what did I believe? Not what, you know, I was born to, you know, born out of with and born into. Um, so then I, you know, rediscovered myself. I rediscovered my roots. You know, I was more curious. I was asking more questions. Um, and that's when I really, you know, looked into, you know, um, where I came from, you know, I was asking more questions about, you know, my roots, you know, I was talking to my grandmother a lot more about, you know, her experience um, as a refugee. Um, I asked her a lot of questions about my grandfather. Um, and it really helped me to reconnect with like the basics, like back to basics, you know, it's like growing a seed and like sprouting all over again. Um, yeah, so that, that was pretty much, you know, my journey. Yeah. And just to delve into that a little earlier, Cynthia, because I know I can relate with, I think there is something that really happens when we have a deep bond with community and relationships are integral to who we are, not just like as a part of our life, but more so even just like they're a part of us. Um, I know your brother and, you know, you were really close. And when that season happened, I, I know I was there, you know, when your family had gone through all of that and, um, it did really rock you. Um, and I'm so glad that on the other side of it all, you were able to bloom and, you know, be able to grieve in your way. Um, what would you say in terms of the identity shifts that happened for you um, when that happened? Like, what, what was some of the things, the hard questions you had to really ask yourself? Mm -hmm. I'd have to say, um, you know, I, I really had to reflect on who I felt I was as a person and what I truly believed in, you know, at that time, I still believed, you know, that there was God and I still do, you know, but, you know, my vision of what God is, is a bit different. You know, I would consider myself spiritual. Um, and I know that, you know, after I had lost my brother, you know, I just recently got married too. So I had moved out to Chicago, found out my brother was murdered and had to like organize the family to have his funeral and his body was, you know, at a different state and we had to organize the transportation of his body and everything seems like a nightmare, you know, still. But um, I had to eventually go back to Chicago and I really didn't have a support system there. I didn't have community. Um, but what really, really helped me was, you know, just reflect. Just, um, one is, you know, finding time for myself and just, um, self-reflection, um, and finding things that brought peace to my life. Um, so, you know, I, for some time I became a vegan and that helped to kind of clear. Yeah. It cleared my mind. Can you believe it? I was vegan wow. for some time and it really like cleared my mind. I'm telling you, like I, I don't know what it was there. You know, I, I know that I had stopped eating meat for some time because it disgusted me after my brother got murdered. Um, so then once I started to clear my mind, then I was able to kind of, you know, set goals for myself. Then I started to volunteer within the Chicago community and that helped to bring, it helped me to 
feel as though I was making a difference in some way, shape or form. Cause like, I would look at these people on the street and they would mind, remind me of my brother. So I did that for some time. Um, and then, you know, there was this dismantling of, you know, my, my marriage because of what happened. Like I fell into like deep, dark depression and, um, and then, you know, I had to come, I had to get out of, of it somehow. And so, you know, I relied on music and that was one thing that, you know, has always helped me to overcome a lot of things, even when I was younger, you know, singing at church, um, singing while, you know, I was at home by myself on, you know, with the radio. Um, so then, you know, I joined a, a, a musicians group within Chicago. It was like, I was there during the uh, inception and it's called the Asian American, no, the Asian, the Asian American Chicago's Musicians Group. And I, I swear that, that saved my life. Yeah, I definitely feel like everyone I've spoken to that had an outlet of creativity and singing. And even when I was a kid, my grandparents used to call me, hey, crazy girl, or radio, because they would say that I would just sing at the top of my lungs and I would wake up and just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, it was my outlet and my joy too. And, you know, to this day, like, cause I also experienced, um, you know, I had a boyfriend in high school that committed suicide. Um, and that is, you know, part of my story. But when that happened and everyone had asked me, Nancy, how did you get through that moment? And it was so hard. And obviously like I couldn't talk about my feelings because we were never raised to do that and I didn't really feel like I had the support of family but what I did is I just sang like I just sang everywhere I went I would go to work I worked at KFC as my first job and I would sing and I would just go home and sometimes like you don't know what to sing but you just listen to songs and it just allows you to feel what you want to feel um yeah, so I definitely relate to like music and being able to have that as an outlet. And now like for me and my journey, I've also found healing and being able to write and, you know, do something about it and serve the community in a deeper way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Bill, um, do you want to chime in and share a little bit of your journey of um, how you started, I guess you can say, breaking free of your communal um, shame or the things that you've walked through and how you've been able to overcome that? Definitely. So I, I was I grown up low income. Um, parents didn't speak. I learned English as a second language. My parents didn't speak English. Um, and so I struggled in school. And so when I branched out and applied outside of my school district to a school of creative performing media arts, um, I found out my shame in my identity because there wasn't people like me around me. There was typically white folk around, and I was a student of color who took the school bus to school, and I was wondering why I was different. But I also found community within the school bus as well. Um, however, identifying being uh, low-income, getting free and reduced lunch, applying for bus. Um, and getting out of my my town um, for a higher education, I really understood about my shame. And from that point on, I went to the University of California, San Diego, and majored in critical gender studies, which really helped me identify institutions of systems of oppression for minority and people of color and how 
oppression works and power dynamics. And so I really found my narrative, my voice, and my power to be able to look at my identity and appreciate all the intersections of my identity that create who I am. Um, and what I always hold true is being um, resilient to um, the forces that tell you no. So I'm always taken a, a resilient approach to life and found my identity and in addition to flourishing my identity I also help others and try to find their their special talent and gift in the world um, and that's that's what really helps me um, go through the shame process of assimilating to Western culture and really identifying why and how and what forces are really controlling my life while I can also self-reflect and um, look within internally and create my own happy little zen zone um, while also being resilient to the world that doesn't accept um, who I am um, in all parts of my identity under the lens of heteronormativity. Yeah, I think one common theme that a lot of the stories that I've seen and for myself included is this big desire to really give back to the community and that is how we find um, our purpose being able to serve the community and still I guess you can say um, be our own selves by doing that but doing it for others I think that's one big thing that really is um, a value of ours being within the Southeast Asian community would you agree um, to both of you guys there yeah, I would definitely agree. You know, being of service definitely helps, um, you know, to, to, to heal. But I also found that, you know, it, it only goes so far. You know, I, I got to the point where, you know, I you know, read the self-help books. I've, you know, done community work. You know, I'm doing things that make me feel good, but they are not, you know, long-lasting. And so it got to a point where I had to have a, a real conversation with myself and, um, and really make the decision to seek, you know, professional help. And, you know, there were things that I had to battle with because of the trauma that I went through, you know, dealing with, you know, violence and abuse, you know, in the household, um, you know, I developed anxiety, depression, um, and then also, you know, um, because of the fact that I felt that I had to be resilient and I had to, um, to fight for everything, you know, that I have. Um, I also, um, you know, have a challenge with, um, feeling as though I'm an imposter a lot of times. So imposter syndrome is something that, you know, I, I have a challenge with as well because I'm the first to, I was the first to graduate from high school, um, college, um, you know, and I'm, I'm in a, an industry, where, you know, most of the time I'm in an office full of, you know, men and they're white men, you know? So, um, you know, and I feel like I don't belong a lot of times, you know, I feel like I'm the one chartering the territories for the generations to come. And, and that's a lot of pressure. So then, you know, that's when I decided to, you know, seek help so that I can overcome the really deep rooted trauma, you know, and, and, it's, and it's helping. And, you know, um, the hardest part was you know, to make that decision. And, um, and I did it, and it's really helping me. It's doing wonders. 
And when you say you got help, what specifically was that? Uh, what type of help did you seek out? I found a therapist. Yeah, that um, I, I, you know, I've been seeing my therapist for about three months now. And um, I see my therapist uh, once every other week. And I mean, it's doing wonders. You know, everything that comes up and I get to, you know, discuss with my therapist and we get to talk through, you know, the different perspective on the situation, different approaches. Um, and, you know, I decided to go and, and seek out the help of a therapist when I started to realize that there were patterns that I couldn't break. Mm-hmm. These patterns were so deep rooted and they were so subconscious that I didn't know where the heck they were coming from. And, you know, every time I go to um, an appointment and we talk through these issues that, that come up, I can definitely trace it back to my childhood. And, um, you know, it's been really helping me. And, you know, a lot of people don't really think about it, but the things that happen to them as a child are things that are affecting them as an adult. And, you know, if they don't fully process it and they don't really, you know, have a chance to, you know, um, figure out where, you know, the challenges are coming from, it's, it's going to be really hard to, to, you know, to be successful and to move forward in life. Were you noticing some behaviors that were coming out that led you to recognize the need to get help? Or what was the process of coming to that decision of like, you know what, I need help? Mm-hmm. I, de- yeah, there are definitely patterns that I was seeing, um, one of which is um, romantic relationships, you know, because like, your father is like the first man that you ever fall in love with. And um, he set the bar really low. So <laughs> I was um, finding myself in um, relationships that weren't really serving me. And, um, you know, and, and also because I had to always be in their survival mode when I was growing up, I really embodied the masculine aspect of myself. And so I wasn't really tapping into the nurturing side of me. So I, I noticed too, like when I interact with people, you know, and I think it's a lot for a lot of this, you know, applies to most Asians too, because their parents have gone through trauma and they're not very warm. Like, I'm not comfortable with like hugs. <laughs> and I noticed a lot of Asians. I'll hug you. <laughs> a lot of like Asian people aren't that way because like parents don't express themselves in that way. And I don't know if it's the trauma that they've been through. But um, yeah, that's something that I struggle with is like, you know, um, like my nurturing side. So I'm like exploring that more with my therapist. Yeah, that's a good point. Because even for me, I mean, you know, I'm not close to my dad. I don't really have a relationship with him. And a lot of our culture, um, the dads are very stern. And there's not that tenderness And therefore, when we think about in America, a lot of our identity comes from the relationship with our father. But if there wasn't that tenderness, then what does that look like in our identity and and how we kind of have to play the role of both, right, um, the feminine and the masculine side Mm -hmm. of being able to be our own provider and just getting things done. And like Bill said, too, like, it's all about resilience, just keeping you know, keep pushing the bar forward and doing whatever it takes. And I'd say that that's one thing that is a strength of being, you know, Southeast Asian and Asian in general, but, you know, 
there's a lot of grit that's formed, a lot of capacity, a lot of um, ability to be able to push forward in struggles. I'd say though, it, it can only take you so far until at one point you maybe recognize that there is a need for external help. And I have found myself in that season this past year, but being brave enough, courageous enough to say, you know what, I actually need help. Um, I hope that this encourages others that are in that same place that maybe they're in their room feeling isolated and alone or, you know, in their cubicle every day. And it's the same old, same old or hiding behind the computer and internet and not feeling like they can really be their best self that, you know, there, there are ways to ask for help and find healing through that process. Um, I know Bill that you do a lot of work with um, facilitating um, safe spaces especially for the LGBT community. And I know it's June, which is um, Pride Month. So that's one of the reasons why I did want to have you share a little bit of what, what that looks like and the importance and maybe things that come up for, um, for that uh, group of people and, and how we can better support and be able to understand and um, learn about the experiences of that community. Definitely. So... I'm taking more of a generalized approach to just the general themes of support groups that I found are pretty um, pretty universal between all support groups and what the meaning of support groups are. So I do I in the past I facilitated for the fluid sexuality group in addition to the pulmonary arterial hypertension support group and the idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis support group. So in a nutshell, support groups um, is where my passion lies because building a supportive network, building a community really helps with one's mental health and that, and really cultivating one's identity. And so being able to be in a room where you can say, I'm not alone, is very powerful. Um, the idea of there's people like me that look like me, that, that think and act in may behave the same way as I is powerful and being able to just um, voice your opinions and have someone reinforce or or uh, kind of replicate and say the same things and mirror what they say um, is powerful. And so the idea of having support, community, and being able to have a voice to vocalize your struggles, your um, the the pros and cons of life and so getting the reality of life and understanding that one is not alone and and also the most important thing is that there's support out there and resources available yeah and bill i don't think we got to highlight it um yet but would you mind sharing with our audience a little bit of your journey of um how you chose to become part of the LGBT community and, and if there was any influence or impact from the Southeast Asian culture and your upbringing that, um, you know, caused you to choose those decisions for your life? Definitely. So I, I represent all the intersectional identities that I have. I don't choose one more than the other. Um, and I choose to embrace all of them. And that's what typically people tend to struggle with is embracing religion or embracing their identity or their sexual identity or their romantic attractions and just saying like, yes, this is all part of me and that's a-okay. And so repeat your question one more time. <laughs> I just your journey. Just your journey. Yeah. 
So my journey really, I think what stems is my journey was all about loss and confusion until I really took critical gender studies and took ethnic study classes about race and power and and monsters and robots of what institutionalized systems create within Western society and how how power and institutions manipulate people and oppress people of color, oppress um, and the idea of what you were talking about prior about genocide, capitalism, colonization. Those are big words that especially as first generation college or as first generation or refugee immigrants um, were to come to the United States, they're first trying to learn the language. And so trying to now be able to gain a voice and gain a, a vernacular vocabulary to describe my feelings of oppression, my feelings of shame, and my feelings of of my journey as being identified as queer and gay, in addition to being Laos and Vietnamese, in addition to being low-income, in addition to living in a low-income area. And so embracing all my identities is where I really embrace myself and took and got rid of my shame and got rid of at least worked on it at least by self-reflection and gaining that knowledge of what the power dynamics are really structuring my life and how people also see me within so how does that um how is your experience now within the laotian community do you feel more or less connected because you've chosen the path that you have um you yeah, feel like yeah that's a that's a that's a good story so my story may reflect and be similar with others who have kind of been on that educational path and so being able to go into higher education one has to sacrifice family time one has to sacrifice um being able to spend a birthday with friends while, you know, you have a midterm or you have something you have to grind and hustle to make money for. And so that that really um, was kind of my journey within the Laotian community and, and trying to find my identity while also trying to find my, my history. And so juggling all the parts um, I, as a... As a 27-year-old, still trying to embrace their identity in all parts of their identity, um, I I visited Laos and I I talked, tried to talk to my mom about the history and her and her refugee experience and the identity of my grandparents and how they are now residing in Thailand because they had to flee from Laos. So those narratives are really what um, are what makes my Laotian community and um, being able to attend events like Lao New Year or uh, potlucks or just food in general is what brings community together, in my opinion. Yeah, food is the common ground. Exactly. Um, thanks for sharing. Yeah, I think, you know, all of us come from this similar upbringing from our parents' struggle. And I think from what I'm hearing in my experience, as well as what you guys have shared, is it's really be, before we can move forward in truly understanding who we are, we've got to take a moment to take a pause and go backwards to understand where 
the stories of our parents' lives fit in so that we can really fit in the pieces and then also like the process of coming to America and their story, their struggle, their journey. And then once we understand more of our, um, the world around us, then it, it allows us to find our place here so that we can grow and flourish and then kind of have all those shackles free of just feeling like we're in the shadows, but now understanding that we have a clear platform to stand on and a clear sense of, you know, the direction and the opportunities that are given to us. Is that, would you guys agree with, um, with that as well? Definitely. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. And platforms like this, where we can talk about our experiences and connect, I think that's very, very important. Um, I remember for the longest where, you know, we, weren't we were hesitant coming forward and we were hesitant to to share experiences and you know i think that's what holds us back to um from really flourishing yeah so for so long because we haven't had platforms to talk about the asian american experience i think we can all agree we probably all felt what we felt and it was all the same but we're feeling that we were alone in it and the importance of, like Bill said, having support groups, feeling like you're not alone, having other people to share your story. Man, there's just so much power and empowerment through that to be able to know that, man, we're all on this journey together. And, you know, how can we just better support one another? Because it, it's not easy. There's a lot of identity challenges. There's a lot of conflicting values growing up within the rules of our parents and then being in America. And, you know, I think we're just all on this journey trying to figure it out, you know, but it's exactly where we need to be and it's okay. And I think that's the message is it's okay and it's okay to get help. Um, so just to kind of round off our conversations though, besides um, singing, you said you did a little bit of poetry, Cynthia. Was there anything else that you really wanted to share that helped you in your journey as well as, you know, to encourage other people to be able to start exploring for themselves or to help give them the courage to be able to do that? Yeah. Um, you know, my advice would be, you know, for, you know, from my experiences, is just to keep moving forward. You know, I mean, life is such, we're always going to be going through some challenges, but the challenges are what builds our character. And I would say, you know, don't give up, keep pushing forward. Um, and, you know, education was, you know, a huge catapult to, you know, pushing me out of like the darkness. Um, and it gave me so many opportunities that my parents didn't have, um, you know, and, you know, I would definitely encourage, you know, um, folks to, you know, focus and go towards education to get themselves out of, you know, a, um, a situation where they feel like they're socially or economically disadvantaged. And Bill, do you have anything to add to that for yourself? Definitely. I agree on the educational part. I know a lot of Asian minority stereotypes say it's like, go always get an education, but education is super important um, to, for me at least, to find a voice and to be able to express myself. Um, and I also found my expression through the arts and I was a dancer throughout high school and I really found expression of anger in my hyperactivity um to really flow through dance and to be able to express myself and um that's where i found my niche into expressing myself and also getting rid of any anxieties or shame or hard days i felt 
Yeah, I heard you were a dancer. I'll have to watch one of your old videos or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you in person. Yeah. And, um, and also, you have to tell us about how you ended up becoming Mr. Lau in 2016. Because mm -hmm. I didn't know you back then. And I know every year there's the Laotian New Year Festival, just like, you know, Vietnamese New Year and Cambodian New Year. Every um, community has their own. So, yeah. Share with us um, how that came to be and um, your desire to even enter the competition. <laughs> uh, so it's interesting because uh, um, I do have a pretty, I, I, I would say I have a couple of Lao friends, which know a lot of other Lao friends. And also my mom is involved with the community, um, working in the temples and also volunteering her time. and praying as well and so my involvement with the community um, started with friends and so being able to connect with the San Diego Asian Youth Organization and then also just representing um, love and resilience and being also half Laotian and half Vietnamese and so representing that as well and my I believe my number one answer was food and it was kapiak and that's and I just explained how food and the idea of culture was really cultivated around food. And uh, I also did a pirouette while I saw food. Um, yeah. And I gave a little couple points here and there. So it was a fun time and uh, really good to experience um, being within the community. And it was kind of a... From my understanding, it was a, a merge of two Laotian organizations, and they wanted to start something new. And so they started something new, and they didn't continue, from my understanding and my knowledge. So I'm the only Mr. Lao San Diego. <laughs> <laughs> the only Mr. Lao San, San Diego in existence? <laughs> Correct. Okay. Until someone turns me otherwise. You will hold the title. And I know, Cynthia, you get to perform from here um, every now and then at the Lao New Year as well. Is that something that you're going to continue to do? You know what? I've I done it once, and it was um, on my bucket list to perform in front of a huge crowd um, because I'm a – well, I was, I was a shower singer, um, but I've, like, blossomed, and I've, like, performed out a bit more. But um, my best friend, she um, was able to get me a spot um, to sing at Allow New Year one year. I think it was probably like seven years ago. She was like, oh, well, we got you on the program. And she was like, yeah, they're going to put you on the stage, but it's a tiny stage. And I show up and it's like the biggest stage ever. I mean, it's probably a stage that Beyonce would sing on. It was that big. And there were like, I kid you not, like 400 people. Um, but yeah, I, it, was a, it was a great experience, but I don't know, maybe. Maybe in the future there'll be other opportunities. Yeah, I do know that you are a good singer, so keep Aww. doing what you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, and I mean, I think the thing between us three being on this call, being on this, um, you know, episode today is that there's something special about being able to do hard things together, do things that maybe you've never done before. This is your first uh, podcast here, Cynthia and Bill as well, right? Yep. Yep. And um, I just encourage that, you know, even for the audience, if there's something that you've been wanting to do and you've never been able to do it or you've had fears holding you back, then 
gather your friends and be able to do it together because it'll help propel everybody to be able to do bigger and better things for their future. And so that's why I wanted to have us three on here. I know the, um, the video didn't work out perfectly with Bill, but hopefully all the audio is catching okay. <laughs> Um, and to be able to say that, you know, we, we are stronger together and especially coming from, you know, a communal based uh, culture, knowing that that's really where our strength lies and being able to support one another in the endeavors that we have and in the different things that we're pushing forward and support is just a huge, huge aspect of the way that we live and breathe and really be able to like embody one another as not just another individual, but like, like you are a part of me and I'm a part of you, you know, and this aspect of like shame-based living is that there's an integral part of one another that's connected to each other. And so if we can find more safe spaces where those things can be honored, those things can be really celebrated, I think those are the areas that we all get to really thrive in. And so that we can find more ways to impact the world and really be our full selves and impact the world for, for greater things for generations to come. So yeah, I think that's going to wrap up our time, though, guys. Uh, thank you so much for being on today's episode, Cynthia and Bill. Uh, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing you the next time, Bill, because I know you're not from San Diego. You're currently where in Huntington Beach? Yeah. Huntington Beach. And Cynthia, I know you're just around the corner, but um, it's always good to be able to come together for um, different projects and causes. And so I'll probably see you at the next one. And for the rest of the audience that's tuning in, hopefully you learned some things today about the Lao community and just Southeast Asian culture in general, and um, really be able to help encourage another brother or sister, maybe that hasn't really had an opportunity to share their story, to, to really um, stand with them so that they can have courage to be able to do that and so that they can be them, their best self. So yeah, until then, um, this is Erasing Shame. We are Erasing Shame one story at a time. Thank you for being a part of Erasing Shame. Please rate and review on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube, and like on Facebook. Share with your friends and followers. Together, we are Erasing Shame one story at a time. Get all the details at racingshame.com.